access to healthcare has not been equal for our nation's citizens and is now further exacerbated and pronounced amid this pandemic. In today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Jag Singh to discuss the stark realities of the lack of access to virtual care for minority groups and the disenfranchised during the coronavirus outbreak. Dr. Singh is professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and served as the clinical director of the cardiology division from 2015 to 2020. He is also the founding director of the resynchronization and advanced cardiac therapeutics program at the Massachusetts General Hospital Heart Center. While together, Dr. Singh shares the early findings from his institution's study regarding the lack of access to virtual care and the direct negative impact it is having on many of our fellow Americans. Dr. Singh also shares valuable and insightful recommendations for our industry leaders to be contemplating to fix this crisis. Additionally, Dr. Singh and I discuss the future of connected care, sensor technologies, and what innovation will mean for patients moving forward. Join us for this frank, candid, and critical conversation as we continue to work together to move our nation's health forward. Welcome to Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli, where we highlight and speak with the innovators, the game changers, and the pioneers who are deeply passionate and relentless in solving the problems our world is facing today. This is your opportunity to connect with and learn from these leaders and to support them on their mission. Perhaps they will soon be hearing your story as well. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you on this journey with us. Dr. Singh, a warm welcome to our podcast, and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm really excited about our potential conversation. Well, I'm looking forward to our conversation as well regarding the impact of the digital divide that is being further exacerbated during the COVID-19 pandemic. And specifically, Jag, I'm eager to dive into what you are experiencing and what you want others to understand in regards to reduced televisits for minorities and the disenfranchised and the broad impact this will have on all of our communities moving forward. Additionally, I'm looking forward to explore all of the new and innovative technologies and sensors or otherwise that you are working with that can really help positively impact our industry moving forward. But before we dive in to learn more about your story, career, and mission to help battle the coronavirus, given your expertise, Jag, a bit of housekeeping, while listening to any of our episodes, please take a moment and visit passionatepioneers.com in order to share your feedback and ideas. Simply scroll to the comments section at the bottom of each posted episode. And lastly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast so you will automatically receive episode updates in your podcast player. Simply search Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right, Jack, I know COVID-19 is new to all of us. It's obviously a novel virus. It hit us hard at the beginning of 2020. And so this is new for industry executives and physicians and providers like yourself. But given your background and your career, maybe you can share a bit about your career and how it got you prepared to help lead the fight against COVID-19. So if you can maybe rewind the clock a bit for us and share a little bit of that background and introduction before we dive in to the important conversation around COVID. Sure. Thanks, Mike. So as a part of the background, I am a cardiologist and a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and work at Mass General Hospital. I am a clinician scientist, or what I all call myself as a clinical trialist, and do a lot of clinical trials in patients with implanted devices for either patients who've experienced sudden death or patients with heart failure 
for heart rhythm disturbances. As a consequence of my trade, I have worked a lot with sensors where I can follow patients remotely and see how they're doing either on the heart rhythm front or either on the heart failure landscape, see whether they're decompensating or doing poorly and proactively then intervene in their care. You know, this has kind of helped me in the COVID era because, as you know, because with the onslaught of COVID, there was a turn of the switch and we eventually went to virtual care. And because of all the social distancing requirements, virtual care really allowed us to still give care to our patients, but this time remotely. And since as a clinical cardiac electrophysiologist, I had been already dealing with a lot of my patients remotely, it allowed me and so many of my colleagues to very quickly move into the virtual care world and be able to look after our patients. Obviously, the circumstances were very different in the current situation, and it required for a lot of flexibility and adapting to how we give care. So that was my, you know, I would say, full-blown engagement of virtual care. And despite the fact that I had been a proponent of virtual care for several years prior to the scourge of this virus, I think the uptick has been tremendous in the last several months. Well, thank you for sharing that background, Jag. And I'm looking forward to diving into the digital divide some of our communities are experiencing and what we can be doing to help solve for that, as well as discuss all things sensors from, again, your story career that you just shared after we get back from thanking our community champion sponsor. As the scope and complexity of revenue cycle management grows, especially during these unprecedented times, Ensemble is leading the industry in revenue cycle management performance, ensuring their partners rank among the top performing health systems in the country. On average, Ensemble is improving their clients' cash collections by 4 to 6%, lowering unbilled days to less than 3 and their clients' first-pass denial rate is now 4.5% better than healthcare financial management associations, industry best practice. Ensemble's work in lifting revenue cycle performance helps providers buy new, durable medical equipment, hire more physicians, and expand their facilities. Ensemble is proud to be helping the flagships of American healthcare to better support the communities they serve. And speaking of community, we are incredibly grateful for Ensemble's support and community champion sponsorship of Passionate Pioneers. To learn more about Ensemble and the passionate mission they are on, head over to EnsembleHP.com or visit the episode notes and click on their link. We're back with Dr. Singh and we have so much to discuss, so let's dive in. Well, Jack, thanks for setting the stage on the first part of our podcast here today. And I'm really looking forward to also discussing what you are seeing on the front lines regarding the digital divide because of this pandemic and specifically with minority and the disenfranchised. Can you explain a little bit of what you and your colleagues are seeing there because of COVID-19 and what we should be thinking about contemplating and, of course, how we can help solve for it? Thanks, Mike. Absolutely. So just to give a little bit of a background on this, it was about four or five months ago, well into the pandemic, that one of my cardiology fellows, a superstar fellow, Dr. Brown, approached me and, you know, really wanted to kind of examine the space of, you know, were we giving the same level of care to our minorities and disenfranchised patients? And so we decided to embark on a study looking at all the patients between March 15th and June 30th of this year, 2020, and compare them to the same time frame from 2019, which were a total of 9,000 visits 
and compare them and contrast them and see, you know, how many patients now were getting video visits versus in 2019, all of them were in person essentially. And what was the distribution of these virtual visits between minorities and were there any differences at all? So we saw a total of 9,000 visits, and of these 9,000 visits, almost about 4,000 were video visits, and about 5,000 were telephone visits, and just a handful, about 500 or so, were in-person visits. And interestingly enough, when we tried to kind of dissect this across, I would say, race, ethnicity, we dissected this across insurance types, as well as socioeconomic status and language we were kind of surprised to see the stark differences in the kind of care our minorities were getting. And just to kind of give you an overview, we found that there was almost a 50% less chance of getting a video visit if you had you know, a public insurance, such as Medicaid, or a 30% reduction of getting a video visit if you were getting your insurance from Medicare. And then when we categorized this by race, we found that non-Hispanic Blacks and Hispanics had, you know, obviously a greater than twofold likelihood of carrying Medicaid. And proportionally, they had a much lower chance of getting a video or a virtual visit through a video platform. So you can well imagine that already we were seeing that the patients who were probably the more complex, more complicated patients had actually find their way into the hospital in the COVID environment because they did not have access to internet and as a consequence of which they could not have these video visits. Looked at this a little more and we found the same thing was happening with the elderly. And, you know, I would say the elderly certainly along with rural communities do classify as disenfranchised. We found that the elderly either got an in-person visit or a phone visit and had a much lower possibility of getting a video visit. And the same actually even applied to folks who you know, spoke a different language. So we found that Spanish speaking and non-English speaking individuals had a twofold higher likelihood of having to come in in person and not be able to get a video visit because of the absence of accessibility to the internet and obviously resources for a virtual visit. So this is just to kind of give you an overview, Mike, but happy to answer any more questions related to this. And thank you for that, Dr. Singh. I really appreciate that. Some really good perspective of what you have been studying. So there are so many questions around that. What do we do next? How do we handle that as an industry? What are the downstream impacts, right? I mean, if you're with one of those groups that you just discussed and you're not getting those visits, what kind of risk are you putting somebody in for an in-person visit? Can those people even come in for an in-person visit? What are some of these downstream impacts that you and your colleagues are maybe already seeing or you foresee happening in the future for our industry? So I think, you know, the first thing I think COVID has made us realize that we're all interconnected, right? And if we want to improve the health of our community, we have to improve the health of everybody. And this disparity is always going to be a big problem because we're not going to be able to, I would say, reduce the cost of healthcare when we see patients who are fairly complex and complicated in their end stages and we can't prevent disease. And this inability to access care, you know, at a drop of a hat whenever they need it, like many other patients do, I think is going to lead to these disparities then becoming, you know, I would say, markedly increased and significantly impacting the cost curve. 
So I think the first thing we certainly have to do is really kind of measure it, which we're doing. I think then based off the measurements and the education that we impart from this, because there's nothing like data to really change practice. I think, you know, most docs listen to data. And if you can confront them with such, you know, strikingly, I would say, you know, really data that is mind boggling, I think it can certainly impact practice out there. I think the community as a whole really needs to kind of individualize strategies out here, figure out where we can intervene, develop small intervention programs, and develop small use cases where you can actually see if the strategy is working or not, show that it has an impact on outcomes, and then create a strategy to disseminate it at a larger level. But along with this, I think, you know, the biggest issue out here, Mike, is access. And this access is largely related to internet access. And I think You know, just like electricity, I think internet access needs to be a human right. And this is where I think, you know, engagement and advocacy at the state level and the federal level are going to be really important too. I couldn't agree more with you, Jack. To me, and you kind of already outlined it, to me, internet access in today's age should be just like being able to turn your faucet on in your home, right? It it should just be there for all of us. We are so dependent and interdependent on digital access these days. And so, Trust me, I'm right there with you. You know, let's also contemplate on reimbursement and policy that we've seen happen over this year of 2020 in regards to CMS really flattening the red tape around reimbursement. Do you see any of that being a positive effect on what you were describing that maybe it will potentially longer term help, you know, gain access for some of our minority community members and our disenfranchised? Uh, Without a doubt, without a doubt. I think, you know, reimbursement has certainly helped. But I think one of the biggest quandaries that people are potentially facing is this going to you know, continue after the pandemic is over. And there have been questions related to that, as you probably also saw and heard that initially there was a huge uptick in telehealth. And in the mid portion of the pandemic, people started swinging the pendulum back to you know, seeing patients in person again. Some of it was, I think, related to their comfort for an in-person visit, but some of it was also related to, you know, reimbursement policies that may not hold water or may not hold strong after the pandemic. So there is some element of uncertainty for sure, but I do feel that just the fact that we've had reimbursement has allowed us to look after so many patients, millions of patients across the country because of, you know, CMS having a very open-minded view about this. And also, Jack, I know it's in real time. You're still gathering the data, and I couldn't agree more. Let the data really direct us of where we're going to make some of these uh, hopeful systemic and holistic changes. But, you know, given that you're swimming through this study in real time with you and your colleagues, even with that, are there some things that you can, you know, counsel us, give us guidance on? We have some of the nation's best and brightest industry leaders listening into our podcast What are some of the things that we should be contemplating that we should be considering around this very important topic? Any, you know, one to three lessons. And again, I preface that I know it's happening in real time with the study, but any good sage advice around this that we should be contemplating? Totally. So, you know, I think one could look at this from the provider perspective or one could look at this from the social perspective and, you know, have multiple lessons out here. So let's look at it from the social perspective. I think as much as we want the government and the federal agencies to kind of support long-term accessibility to the internet, I think at the local level, we need to work with the community centers 
and create, you know, Wi-Fi hotspots or create some sort of strategies to have open Wi-Fi in close connection to schools and libraries and community centers. So we can start, you know, enabling the delivery of virtual care to patients who cannot come in in person. And at the same time, you know, provide them personalized integrated services closer to where they are rather than them having to find their way into a hospital, and especially with the surge still in motion. So that's one thing. Second thing is, I think we have to also look at this in terms of what is practical and what is not practical. And I think it would be important for us, as well as providers, as well as, you know, for the payers to recognize this, as well as the community as a whole to recognize that there are certain use cases we need to identify where virtual care can make a huge dent in outcomes. And whether those use cases are either, you know, hypertension or diabetes or heart failure, I think creating strategies that we can disseminate equally across the society for certain specific use cases to show that we can really change the outcome out here would be important to then subsequently, I think, not only reinforce reimbursement strategies, but also acceptance as a whole for virtual care. You know, because virtual care, it's not just, I think there's a resistance for virtual care at many levels, right? It's sometimes at the patient level because they're not used to this form of interaction with their providers or doctors or nurse practitioners. And at the provider level, because, you know, many folks have learned their trade in a particular pattern and fashion and would like to continue to practice that in the way they're most comfortable with. But if we could show them that it really translates into better outcomes, enhances efficiencies, and obviously cuts costs, objectively, I think we can then make a huge dent in how people practice medicine in the future. Well, let's also go there, Jag. Let's switch gears a bit and talk about the future. And thank you for all of that important perspective and consideration of how we should be thinking about current state. But I also want to go future state. You are definitely a prolific futurist within the health tech innovation community, and you have a huge passion around sensors, the connected patient, and what that's going to mean moving forward. Obviously, a lot has been exacerbated and really, I believe, kind of fast forwarded because of the pandemic, right? We've been waiting for so long to see like virtual care become an industry standard. And now because of necessity and need of the pandemic, that has really accelerated. And I also believe that the connected patient sensors and those types of technologies, we're going to see an acceleration of adoption there as well. And given your perspective and your work, Jack, as a health tech futurist, maybe you can share a bit what's happening within the sensor space, what's happening within the connected patient kind of world, and what does this mean for us moving forward as we continue to migrate through the pandemic and beyond? Thanks, Mike. I could certainly go on for hours on this particular topic, but I'll try to be as precise as possible. So, you know, like you, I believe that, you know, the future of healthcare or a large segment of the future of healthcare is going to be digital. It is going to be a combination of virtual care that is aided by sensors and powered by predictive analytics or artificial intelligence, if you want to say that. And I think three of these are going to go hand in hand. And there will be different use case strategies that will be developed in the near future. And there are many that are already in play. You know, as a cardiac electrophysiologist, I implant devices in patients, be it, uh, you know, defibrillators or pacemakers. And most of these devices already have sensors within them. And these sensors can measure, you know, anything right from heart failure to heart rates, to respiratory rates, to temperatures, to oxygen saturations, 
to heart sounds. And that integrated information actually gives you objective data about the patient, sometimes even more objective data than a clinical examination can. And I feel that a lot of the future of care is going to be that objective data coupled with virtual care that can provide as a reasonable substitute for an in-person visit. At this point in time, Mike, you know, most virtual care visits are very qualitative. They're not quantitative. They're not as objective. It's a more of a, hi, how are you feeling kind of an interaction. And I think for this to really gain more traction on both ends at the patient as well as the physician end, we have to objectify that visit. And I think the only way to objectify that visit is through sensor strategies. And there are a slew of sensor strategies that obviously are present in implantable devices, but at the same time, there are many that are coming out in wearable devices. And I think you and I both know about, we were talking about, you know, whether these are devices like Fitbit or Apple Watch or Halo, they all give us a spectrum of measured variables such as physical activity, oxygen saturations, temperatures, autonomic tone, which again can help with the clinical visit. So I think this is the way it's moving forward. And I think at the back end, if we can create some way of, you know, using this data in an integrated fashion to provide individualized care, that's where the future is going. And I think we need to be ready to kind of adapt and flex and, you know, because there are a lot of changes that are going to be thrown at us in the coming few months and years for sure. Well, Jag, you teed it up right before when I asked the question. I couldn't agree more. I could be here for hours with you on this topic alone. So I'm going to throw it out there right now. We may have to bring you back. We'll focus in on health tech innovation and all the wonderful work and the perspective that you have. But I do have one more question before we turn gears a bit here. In regards to payment reform, when we think about navigating towards value-based care, do you believe or are you envisioning that, you know, sensor technology, connected patient, that's going to have a direct impact on reimbursement and where we're going with value-based care? I think value-based care, you know, obviously still needs to be fully inculcated into the culture of day-to-day practice. But I think, you know, as we become more and more accountable for our outcomes and sensor strategies that will enable us to objectively quantify our outcomes in real time, and I think eventually we'll land up having better outcomes because we monitor our patients in real time and, and intervene appropriately. I think it's all going to become a really important part of this whole value-based care strategy. You know, one of the things I could again talk for a few hours on, but I think self-management approaches where patients are engaged in their own health is also going to be an important part of this equation. I couldn't agree more. All right, Jag. Well, hopefully you'll take me up on the offer. I might be calling you back when we start heading into 2021 and bring you back just to focus in on this topic. There is so much to explore. So thank you for sharing that. And again, we'll be teeing up hopefully another episode with you. I now want to turn to the personal side of all of this. And I appreciate you, you know, as we were working up to have this podcast episode together, you were honest and forthright about you being a COVID-19 patient. Here you are serving your patients in your community, but you became one as well. You know, and here we are, let me tee this up, Jag. You know, here we are, holiday season. As Dr. Fauci recently said, we are potentially going to experience a surge on top of a surge. With you not only providing critical care within your community out in Massachusetts and also being a patient, what are some things that we should be considering, not only as industry executives and leaders, but also as community members ourselves and potentially being a patient ourselves as well. Absolutely. Thanks, Mike. You know, actually, I just wrote a blog today 
on can I get reinfected? Can I get COVID again? That's the title of it. Just to kind of give a little bit of a backdrop, I contracted COVID early March, probably amongst the first, you know, in my hospital for sure to get COVID. Had, I would say, a fairly eventful interaction with COVID. I actually did pretty well. I was admitted for about 10 days in the ICU for a day, but did quite well eventually. And everything turned out fine. It took me a little while to recover. The air hunger continued for almost, I think, two months or so, but I was back to work within a month. And, you know, the reason I could get back to work within a month was uh, virtual care. I was seeing my patients virtually and looking after them virtually. So that's one of the advantages of, you know, being able to deliver care, even if you're still recovering from an illness. I think the fear of a reinfection certainly is something that I feel is real. I think, however, I do have antibodies and immunity is a good thing. And I am out there on the front lines again, looking after patients on the floors and I'm on service in the middle of December, which I think is going to be peak COVID surge time. And I am, you know, paying it forward and repaying my debt by looking after patients uh, during this period of time. I do feel that we all must recognize that COVID doesn't pay particular attention to any demographics. As much as we've seen the disenfranchised and the minorities impacted by it, it can affect anybody. I'm a healthy guy and I've seen so many healthy people with no comorbidities actually taken down by COVID and taking several months to recover after they got COVID. So I don't think anybody should take it lightly. I do know that there are a large proportion of patients that get it, have a mild infection and do all right, but it is unpredictable as to which patients may actually do poorly versus those that do all right. And we still don't know how to risk stratify elegantly how it transpires. So I think it's really important that we pay attention to the risk of getting COVID and not so just the personal risk of getting COVID, but of transmitting it as an asymptomatic carrier or just transmitting it because of our, you know, not paying attention to wearing masks and socially distancing ourselves. Even though the vaccine is on the horizon, I think by the time the vaccine is produced in quantities and delivered around the country and around the world, COVID is going to be with us for several months to maybe most of the next year with us. Until that vaccination doesn't occur until we don't have enough herd immunity, I think we're all still going to be very susceptible to COVID infections and potentially some to even COVID reinfections. So I think the best thing we can do is while the vaccination is getting deployed for us to wear masks and, you know, protect each other, look after each other by wearing masks and distancing ourselves and obviously, you know, sanitizing as we've been taught right from the beginning of this pandemic. So I would say those are really essential features that we need to pay heed to. And, you know, holidays coming, we're all going to have the propensity to gather together with our family and friends. I think we need to pay heed and take a year out and get back to social gatherings maybe next year and try to avoid it this year because I think we're in the midst of a surge and I think the surge on the surge will get even worse if we, you know, continue to flock together and not pay heed to masking up. Thank you for that, Jag. It, it is important to continue to reiterate this and for our nation to hear it. It's more important than ever. And I just hope so many people in our country will continue to take 
the advice and heed the warning from leaders just like you and somebody that has also spent time in the ICU because of it. So thank you for that, Jack. Well, let's start tying this all together here. We covered so much today. Like I said, we'll probably have to come back together and really dive in on the technology and innovation front in the coming months. But for now, Jag, where can we find you online, social media handles, websites, or otherwise? Where can our community get a hold of you online? Oh, absolutely. Thanks, Mike. And thank you for this opportunity to speak to everybody and to you in particular. I can be easily found on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at JagSingMD, J-A-G-S-I-N-G-H-M-D. I can also be found on LinkedIn. You know, we're looking for partners in treating this digital divide and trying to overcome this digital divide. We're looking for individuals, companies, industries, whoever has ideas and resources. We're happy to work with you and figure out how we can disseminate care in a more equitable fashion. So, yeah. Happy for you know people to contact me individually at any point in time. Uh, I'd be more than happy to respond and keep the communication moving forward. Well, to our innovation community, you just heard the call to action. Here, Jack Seeing is over at Harvard Medical School. Last time I checked, one of the top institutions on the planet. And they still need help to continue to battle this together. And that's the point of our podcast is that we need to work together, no matter how big or small. If we have a passion to reimagine this industry, let's do this together. So we'll also leave those contact points in the episode notes for JAG. Just simply scroll down in your favorite podcast player and click on through. Additionally, we'll have this episode posted over at passionatepioneers.com where you can get those contact points and leave comments, questions, ideas, or thoughts for Dr. Singh and his team. So for now, Jag, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I know how busy you are over there, but more importantly, I appreciate you coming and sharing everything happening in your camp, how we can get involved. And I'm certainly looking forward for our community to continue to support you and follow your journey. So for now, thank you for being with us today, Jag. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today on Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. We'd love to hear your feedback about the podcast so we can continue to improve this community and to further support the pioneers being featured. Lastly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends and colleagues to join us. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you back with us during our next episode.